Busy weekends are a breeze with American Express Platinum Card. 8 a.m., wait to board plane in the Centurion Lounge. <sighs> Much better. 2 p.m., grab seats for the game. Come on, pick and roll! 6 p.m., book an exclusive reservation with Resi Global Dining Access. Right this way. Because the American Express Platinum Card offers access to the Centurion Lounge, must-see live events, and exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants. See how to elevate your experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Don't live life without it. Terms apply. An epic matchup between your two favorite teams, and you're at the game getting the most from what it means to be here with American Express. You breeze through the card member entrance, stop by the lounge. Now it's almost tip-off, and everyone's already on their feet. This is gonna be good. See how to elevate your live sports experience at AmericanExpress.com slash with Amex. Don't live life without it. Eligible American Express card required. Benefits vary by card and by venue. Terms apply. You always know that, you know, if Joe were here, how would it be different? I know she wonders that. She wonders that too. So you live in that shadow. Do you ever get that? Sure, you wonder. You know that there was somebody else that meant a lot. And, you know, this wasn't, it wasn't a divorce. Correct. And it's there. And it doesn't go away. Welcome to the Real Sports Podcast. I'm your host, Max Gershberg. The month of September looms particularly large in the life of ESPN's Adam Schefter. Not only because football season is also Schefter season, requiring the NFL insider to appear on the air at seemingly all hours of all days, but because this month also brings about the annual commemoration of September 11th, a date that indelibly altered the course of Adam Schefter's life. On today's podcast, we'll be featuring the Real Sports profile of Schefter that first aired three years ago and was updated for this month's show as we marked the 20th anniversary of September 11th. You'll learn that Schefter's family dynamic is one that few of us can fully appreciate, but correspondent John Frankel certainly can, because he and Adam Schefter have in a way led parallel lives. I'll let John tell you the details shortly, but after you hear this story, stick around, because we'll be joined by John Frankel to discuss the challenges of reporting a subject that is deeply personal, and talk about how his family life, too, has been shaped by the terrorist attacks of 20 years ago. All that coming up, but first, here's John Frankel's latest story on Adam Schefter. It happens almost daily. A big story will break in the most important reporting beat in sports, the NFL. And the same man will be behind it. The Jacksonville Jaguars and Urban Meyer are in advanced talks to try to finalize a deal that would make Meyer the next head coach. What's been the biggest get? John, here's the thing in the NFL. There's a get every day. Every day in the NFL, there's news. I don't think about what I got yesterday or last week or last month. People get fired. People get hired. People get in fights. People sign contracts, get traded. There's always something happening. When it does, it's almost always Adam Schefter who's telling the world about it. Somehow, this five-foot-eight guy from Long Island who's never worn a helmet in his life has become the ultimate insider in the NFL. Liable to break news anywhere, at any time. Expects to sign with 
New England. I just posted it. How's that for a bomb? Woo! We first tried keeping up with Schefter nearly three years ago. Good morning. That meant rising before the sun as he tried to get the jump on the competition. Williams is in consideration for the job. By dawn, he'd arrived at the Manhattan studios of his employer, ESPN, ready to tell the world what he'd already learned. Adam Gase is going to be the head coach of the New York Jets. Then it was a two-hour drive to Bristol, Connecticut, ESPN's main campus, where he appeared all day long, on show, after show, after show. The day starts, and it never stops. But this is the office. Not even when day turned back into night and Schefter returned home. Because well before the pandemic made broadcasting from home part of a television reporter's life, Schefter already had a home studio. So he could go back on air anytime there was news to break. Right behind this door is a little camera. Not very big. Right. But they could remote control that from ESPN. So what you have to handle on your end is throw on a shirt, grab a tie, That's even if it. you're wearing shorts. Put the tie on and sit down in this chair right here, right? Here's my mic. Here's my IFB. Sit down in the chair. We have a trade, another trade. The team ESPN has access to me at all times. They own you. ESPN owns me and is not shy about exercising its ownership. Schefter's obsession with information extended beyond the game of football. Here in his home studio, when he wasn't on air, he was meticulously reporting on his very own life by keeping a daily journal. I've documented every single day since 1990. And I can go back, you could ask me, what were you doing on November 4th, 1994? And I could go to my computer and I have files for every day of every year. It's that fixation with recording and reporting everything that's made Schefter the man football fans look to for information. Eight million of them follow him on Twitter awaiting his every post, which is why, between gathering information and tweeting it out to the masses, Schefter never puts down his phones, any of them, from his daily workout... How we doing? ...to the sit-down interview we did for this story, which was interrupted again and again. Um, hold on. Uh, second there. Uh-oh. We got some news here. As it goes off again. Okay. Um... Can I tell you something? Yeah, I'm annoying. It's annoying. Yeah. And when you're having a conversation, and you used to look down, and there's an owner texting you at this point in time, something interesting. Okay. That's the job, and it is annoying. Schefter's commitment to reporting began accidentally, back in 1985, when he was a freshman at the University of Michigan, and couldn't quite find a place to fit in. Fraternity didn't let me into the fraternity. Football office didn't need somebody to pick up jock straps. Basketball team didn't need somebody to pass out water bottles. And when there was nothing else and nobody else that wanted me, I went down to the student newspaper and volunteered as a last resort. You went knocking on those other doors first? Correct. And I just started working at it and working at it and working at it. After Schefter graduated, he became a print reporter in Denver, covering the Broncos for 15 years before joining the NFL Network, where he soon became a star. I'm told that very little, if any, progress had been made. While he had a thriving career and loved his work, it consumed him. And that's all he had. I wanted something else. And all your close friends from college and high school, everyone's married and having kids and starting families. And you think, okay, something's missing here. Then, one day, a friend set him up on a date with a woman 
who was also looking to fill a hole in her life, a single mother with a young son, who'd been left widowed by the terrorist attack of 9-11. It wouldn't have been how I drew it up. It wouldn't have been, oh, I'm looking to meet a 9-11 widow who's the mother of a one-year-old son. Any reservations? Well, John, at that point in my life, I was open to trying anything. So Schefter, true to form, did a little reporting and reached out to someone who had dated and married a 9-11 widow who also had a young son. That person was me. I had been married to my wife, Erin, for about two years. I'm sitting in my office one day, phone rings. Hi, this is Adam Schefter. I don't know how you knew my situation, but you called me and asked for some advice. Why? I think, like always, John, I was looking for information. And so I was just looking for somebody to say, hey, this is what it's like. These are the challenges that are there. It's not anything that you can't do. And With that, Schefter began dating Sherry Mayo, whose husband Joe had worked on the 105th floor of the World Trade Center. When you were at your depths, did you ever think you'd be able to meet anybody that could make you as happy as Joe did? He was my first love, and I had a child with him. And I didn't think I'd meet someone like Adam. What did you like about him when you met him? He was a nice person. He was funny. Um, he was very cute. And I liked the fact that he connected with my son. One year later, Adam and Sherry were married. I asked Adam if he'd read me his journal entry from the day he proposed. Friday, December 8th. 2006, I was coming home from Pittsburgh. I was doing a Thursday night game on NFL Network. I got on the plane. Then I dozed off there and woke up when we were circling New York. I thought it was only fitting that we flew almost directly above the World Trade Center. I said, Joe, I'm going to be looking out for your family. Let me ask you this. You wrote that. You said, Joe, I'm going to be looking after your family. You think you've done a good job? You think you'd be proud? I hope so. I mean, I've tried awfully hard, and I've given everything that I could. Schefter became a father to Sherry's son, Devin, who was overjoyed to have a man back in his life. I'm very lucky to be here today for my launch wedding. And you guys are too. And I love my new dad. Schefter would also go on to honor the man he replaced. In typical fashion, he reported on Joe Mayo, writing a book called The Man I Never Met. Who is it most important to keep his memory alive for? Is it Sherry or is it Devin? I think more important for Devin. I mean, Sherry knows the type of man Joe was. Devin was a year old when he lost his father, so he does not know. And he still hasn't read the book. And one day, I hope he will, and he will have a better idea of the type of man he was. But Schefter says it's not always easy living in the shadow of someone else. Sherry and Devin have kept Joe's last name, and they still live in the same house that Joe and Sherry shared. Adam must even share his birthday with Joe. Remarkably, they were born on the same day. Joe is still part of our family, and I don't think I could be with anyone who couldn't accept that. Do you think that's hard on Adam? 
he maybe internalizes it, but he never complains or turns the other way when I bring up his name. He handles it the way that I had hoped the person I married would. It's not easy. You are always trying to be a better husband and a better father. Like, you always know that, you know, if Joe were here, how would it be different? I know she wonders that. She wonders that too. So you live in that shadow. Do you ever get that? Sure, you wonder, you know. You know that there was somebody else that meant a lot, and, you know, this wasn't, it wasn't a divorce. Correct. And it's there, and it doesn't go away. You end the book, Joe never knew me, but here I am, living his life. I occupy his space. I fall asleep next to his wife and have helped raise his son. I call his parents on his birthday. I have lived in that house for almost 12 years now far longer than Joe did. Mm. But every time I come home, I feel like I'm walking in to Joe Mayo's house, and I am. Still feel that way? Yeah. I stepped into their lives. They didn't step into mine. They made me happier. They gave me purpose that I didn't have before. People said to me, Aaron and Asher are so lucky, and I say, no, I'm the lucky one. That's exactly right, 100%. Over the years, both Adam and I have grown our families. After I adopted Asher, my wife and I had two daughters. And after Adam, Sherry, and Devin became a family, they welcomed a little girl of their own. But no matter how many years go by or how big our children grow, the impact of that fateful day lingers. Each September brings painful feelings back to the surface. And this month has been especially hard. I would tell you, that the two weeks leading up to the 20th anniversary of 9-11 were as difficult as any I could remember because the messaging of the anniversary and the commemoration of it was so prevalent. I don't know if you go through this, but you want to be there to support your wife because it is a hard week, but you also want to give her her distance and leave her alone. There's really no right or wrong, and it's very hard to figure out. You find the same thing? Of course. It's a dance and they're leading. And there's no pattern to it. There's no rhythm or routine to it. The dance could go any which way on any day, right? Absolutely. Your wife struggling these two weeks? Oh yeah, yeah. More so than normal? I don't know if it's more so. I, I wonder what the impact of 20 means. I think it's reflected in seeing our son become a young man. And I think that really expresses the passing of time more than anything. Asher, who was just three years old when I met him, is now a man of 21. So is Devin, who was only seven when his mother married Adam Schefter. But that's not all the boys have in common. Like Adam and me, they seem to be living parallel lives. Both are now seniors in college, both at Schefter's alma mater, the University of Michigan. And both are set to graduate in the spring, on the same weekend of the biggest news event on the NFL's annual calendar. Devin's graduation weekend coincides with the NFL draft. You get paid a lot of money to be responsible to ESPN. There are a lot of people who want your information. What do you do? Well, I'm going to the graduation going to the graduation. I'm, 
I have never missed an NFL draft in 31 years, but I also haven't had a son who's graduated from Michigan in the circumstances that he's had. And so to me, there's one answer. The problem is the phone's gonna ring and the texts are gonna keep coming in. And there's gonna be somebody who calls and says, hey, what do you think's going on at pick number four? And I'm gonna be like, I don't know, I'm in Ann Arbor, I'm at graduation right now, <laughs> right? And so that will be a time where I will be unavailable. And that will be weird, very weird. Painful for you? Uncomfortable, but right. Okay, we're now joined by the man who brought you that story, John Frankel. John, thanks so much for coming on. I appreciate Max having me on. So John, this piece, of course, breaks one of the core rules of journalism, right? Never to insert yourself as a reporter in the story. Going in, did you have any reservations about doing something that was so deeply personal for you and your family? For sure, Max. There's no question that when we first did the story, when it was first broached, the idea to sit down with Adam and talk about his story, but talk about some of the parallels in our lives, that I went to Aaron, I went to Asher, I went to my two girls and asked them how they felt. Because in short, it's their story. It's not my story. And obviously, it's interesting to be so public about it because on the one hand, the events were so public. But when it comes to grieving and how people deal with it, obviously, everybody wants to handle it in their own fashion. And and my family has tended to be pretty quiet about it and, and kept to themselves. Before diving deeper into the piece, I, I want to go back to that tragedy 20 years ago. You weren't just in New York on 9-11. You were working as a reporter, right, John, and quickly found yourself down at Ground Zero. So can you take me back and, and walk me through your memory of that day? Sure. I was the national correspondent for the CBS Early Show, which was hosted by Brian Gumbel. Um, and I didn't have anything really on my docket for the day, so I wasn't prepared to be in the office first thing. In fact, I was headed around the corner to stop in at my dad's apartment, and I hadn't shaved. I had the TV on, and I saw the first one and sort of obviously puzzled, like so many people, and uncertain of what I'd just seen. Spoke to the office briefly and then realized that obviously there was, even before the magnitude of what had unfolded, you know, quickly shaved, got into a suit, was making my way to the subway line. I remember this specifically on the Upper West Side of Manhattan at 72nd Street and Broadway. And and I recall very vividly of getting out at Chambers and, and walking up the subway stairs and then hitting the sidewalk. And right away, you began to see things that were a little unusual, obviously. You, you saw an entire breakfast that had just been dropped on the sidewalk. You saw a couple of shoes that people in running away from ground zero had just simply run right out of their shoes. And just as we were turning the corner, the second building began to fall. And I would say ran three, four blocks until things finally sort of settled and you felt comfortable enough. And then shortly thereafter, in an effort to want to start doing my job, because I basically my goal of getting down to the trade centers had been to just hook up with a camera crew and start working. That was my assignment. And we'd all sort of figure it out as the day went on. And of course, I never got there. But then as I'm now, the debris is sort of settling, if you will, and, and I'm walking and here comes 
Mayor Rudy Giuliani, followed by a pack of people. And I just sort of attached myself to the group and ended up walking right next to the mayor. And even though I didn't have a camera crew, I figured, well, I've got a notebook. I'll, I'll just, I asked a couple of questions, which I think happened to be picked up by New York One or one of the other stations. And that was the beginning. And thus began three weeks in a row of, of every day being down in that area and reporting from our location, which was on the West Side Highway at the time. And that went on for several weeks. Your being on the scene, John, means you were right there not long after your wife Erin's first husband, Greg, perished. And that, does, that, does that stick with you? Is that something you, you think about often? Yeah, absolutely. There's no question that I, that I thought about it in hindsight, you know, once I met Aaron. And then, you know, fast forwarding, Max, if I can, there was even something more that stuck with me even more, which was in, um, I met Aaron in January of 2003. And in March of 2003, I was going overseas to cover the war. And I was going to be embedded with the 101st with an engineers group. And I would be out in the middle of the Kuwaiti desert on a sat phone trying to talk to Aaron, who I now only had known for two months, but we were already very connected. And I, the idea that I was out in the middle of this desert covering a war that was being waged against the people who we believed had taken down these buildings and murdered Greg and the other thousands of people. Uh, there just seemed to be some strange twist of fate. I don't, you know, irony is not the right word, but I, it just, it was a constant reminder that, you know, here I am falling in love with this woman and I'm finding myself in this situation. And, and, and if I'm in harm's way, boy, isn't that going to be crazy that she's already lost somebody and here I am trying to do my job and perhaps putting myself in harm's way. Skipping forward, John, we, we heard in your story about Adam Schefter calling you up to ask about the challenges associated with stepping into this sort of family dynamic. What do you remember of that conversation and, and what you told him? I remember sitting, I remember getting the call, sitting in my office at CBS at the time and staring out the windows of the west side of Manhattan in the 50s and sort of surprised that, that I was getting this call, but at the same time understanding that he was concerned about the situation that he was stepping into. And I don't want to make it sound so unique. Obviously, there are people who have married people who have lost spouses. There are people who have <laughs> millions of people who have married people who have divorced. Um, I think, again, the public nature of this and the scale of it made it obviously different in that way. And so I just shared with him that there were going to be things that there were going to be uncertainties. You know, I think I told him at a certain point that when I was getting involved with Aaron, I remember turning to my own father and saying, you know, Dad, you're not going to believe it. I'm, I'm falling in love with this woman who lost her husband on 9-11. And I said, I never anticipated this. And boy, does she have some baggage. And my dad said to me, he says, well, everybody's got baggage. <laughs> You've got a lot of baggage. <laughs> and so who cares? And I shared that with Adam, you know, that, you know, we, everybody's got their stuff to unpack. Everybody's got that stick with the little satchel over their shoulder. And so, yeah, there are going to be some things that, you know, I haven't experienced yet. You're not going to know how to deal with. 
And I think Adam and I now looking as, as we mark 20 years of this, that, you know, we've certainly both experienced some situations where, as we discuss in the piece, that your, your job is just to sort of get out of the way. You let them lead. And, and particularly when it comes to this, this date on the calendar. And, and I think he appreciated the words and, and it brought him some comfort and some confidence. Yeah, we, we heard you read back to Adam the powerful excerpt that closes his book. I'm going to recite part of it again. Joe never knew me, but here I am living his life. I occupy his space. I fall asleep next to his wife and have helped raise his son. How did that resonate with you, John, when you read it? I, I thought it was very powerful and I was moved by it. At the same time, I think that there's some distinctions to be made because certainly Aaron and Greg were very connected in love. Aaron holds on to, to those memories very deeply and cherishes the time that she had with Greg. I think we also together accept that I feel terrible that Greg did not have the opportunity to watch Asher grow up. At the same time, I adopted Asher, which was different than what Adam's situation was. It changed the dynamics of the relationship for Asher and for me and for Aaron in that regard. Greg is Greg has always been part of the conversation. His pictures are up around the, the house. Aaron can speak freely about him. I think that it's hard for Asher because he was 23 months old when Greg was killed. And as Aaron and I have discussed, I think that it must be hard for somebody to feel something for somebody who essentially they have no memory of. But at the same time, I think that Asher has reached out and connected the dots and closed the circle in his own way by going to the University of Michigan, where Greg went, by pursuing a career in finance. And that's what he'll be doing when he graduates next spring. In fact, he'll be working at the same firm where Greg worked. And I think that was Asher's way of, of making sure that he has an emotional connection to Greg. For you, John, you know, you asked the question of Adam, so I'll ask it of you. Is it difficult living in the shadow of another husband, another father? I think that there's, there's no question that there are times when you ask yourself, would Aaron be more comfortable with Greg in this particular moment? Would Greg have handled this better than I'm handling this at this moment? And so does that make her wish that he was here and I wasn't? I think those are obvious things to ask yourself. I wish that Aaron had not had to have gone through the pain that she did. At the same time, it's weird. You got to flip that coin and you say to yourself, well, if she didn't go through the pain and she didn't suffer the loss, then I'm not where I am. And I'm not with this woman that I love. And I don't have a son who I love. So I guess that's life, right? There's no explaining how life works and the path that you're going to take. And so you, you take it as it comes. And again, I, I just, I feel bad that Greg hasn't had the opportunity to watch his son our son, all of us, grow up and become the wonderful young man that he is. John, such a heavy cloud hangs over our city of New York and the whole country every year when September 11th rolls around. Adam told you the last couple weeks leading up to the 20th anniversary were as hard as any he could remember. How's it been for you and for Aaron? As Adam and I discussed, 
when the mood strikes, if you get my drift, which is, is when the clouds become heavier around that date on the calendar is very hard to predict. You know when it's coming in the sense that, okay, that here comes this date, but is it going to be three days before? Is it eight days before? Is it what is it that Aaron's going to see or hear or feel that's going to bring on these feelings each year as they naturally come? And so that's the unpredictable nature of it. When am I going to encounter that her mood has changed and, and she's a little quieter and a little more reserved? And I, I always, as I write Aaron a note every year, I am so impressed and admire her for her strength not just the strength that she demonstrated 20 years ago because she had to raise a son for 16 months alone, but in the moment to just soldier through. And Aaron has always had a line that you don't get over this, you get through it. And she works through it in her way. I know that she's always relieved when the day is over. And this year she did acknowledge that this was, if not the single most difficult, but it was certainly one of two or three of the most difficult. And I think in part because, you know, the nature of the coverage, there was just so much of it and she does her best to avoid it. But sometimes that's, it's inevitable that you're going to see it and read about it. And like I said, I, I just try to, you know, whatever she asks of me that day. And I wish I could live by that 365 days a year, but I don't, but whatever she asks of me that day, I do. And if that means, let her go and and do her walk and have her lunch with another friend of hers who also lost her husband that day, her first husband that day. If it's, she wants to just sit in her room, if she wants me to go for a walk with whatever she wants to do, I'll do. But I do know that she acknowledged that this one was, was particularly difficult. Mm-hmm. How did you sense that that grieving process has changed over the years for Adam and for the Schefters? And how has it changed for you and your family, John? I don't know that our grieving process or Aaron's grieving process or Asher's grieving process has changed significantly from year to year. Aaron likes to visit a park bench in Central Park where Greg's name is. She likes to put a rock on the bench. She likes to sit there and take that in. I I think Adam... You know, again, he would say that that Sherry said that this was probably the most challenging of all the years, um, marking the September 11th events. And that, you know, we talked about whether it seems like it's been slow or it's been fast and has has the time gone by. And, you know, I my response to him and it's in the piece and it was because he sort of turned the tables on me. I, I just said to him, I think the greatest expression of time passing, you know, is is to see Asher as a young man. And for, for Adam to see Devin as a young man, you know, these were young boys, innocent boys who actually was a baby and who, who knew nothing, you know, so to now see where they are, I think it's, it's, you know, there are pros and cons. There is the pain of the events and what happened. And then there is the beautiful journey that these young men have taken. And so you, you see where they are in their lives and you say, okay. Life does go on and beautiful things can happen. John, Adam gives you credit for providing him perspective on how to navigate all of this. Was it instructive or even cathartic for you to do this story, talk to Adam, learn from his experience? I think it's nice to just 
sort of get an amen, if you will, you know, that there's somebody else. And obviously, I, I know another gentleman who's on the periphery of our circles who married a woman who lost her first husband on 9-11. And we've had conversations. But I think it is nice to be able to share with others and just sort of say, yeah, I, I know what you're talking about. I feel that. I've seen that. And and there are questions that one has. And when you you read his book and you can feel for for certain things, you know, that he's gone through, you know, and I remember that reading the book that I really empathized with things that he talked about in the book. But at the same time, I have to, I don't think I've ever defined myself by that role. And my role model for that has been Erin because she has never defined herself by the events of 9-11. She realized that she was in a very difficult place um, and as sad as she was and as hard as it was, she had a 23-month-old baby who she had to raise. And she didn't know whether John Frankel was going to come along or somebody else was going to come along. And she didn't know when that person was going to come along. So she had to take it upon herself. And so I look at her and say she didn't wrap herself in the cloak of I'm a 9-11 widow. And so why should I define myself as being married to a, a woman who lost her husband on 9-11? Well, John, I know this story is uniquely personal and this conversation even more so. And I, I really appreciate you coming on to, to chat about it. Well, thanks, Max. Thanks for giving me the opportunity to, to share my story and, and Adam's story. And John's story is just part of this month's episode of Real Sports. Also on the new show, Andrea Kramer goes behind the scenes with Mark Davis, the eccentric owner of the Raiders, who has long lived in the shadow of his dad, Al. But now Mark is forging his own legacy relocating the Raiders to their new home in Las Vegas. Another piece from our John Frankel brings us the story of Jerry Garcia, a firefighter with the U.S. Forest Service, who is also one of the country's top ultramarathon runners. And Bryant Gumbel sits down with Dr. Anthony Fauci for a one-on-one -on -one interview to discuss the state of the COVID pandemic and its impact on the sports landscape. You can catch those stories and all recent episodes of Real Sports with Bryant Gumbel on HBO Max. I'm your host, Max Gershberg. Thanks for listening, and please join us again next time. When you're an American Express Platinum Card member, don't be surprised if you say things like, Chef, what course are we on? I've, I've lost count. Or, shoot that, shoot that! And even, Checkout's not until 4, so... Because the American Express Platinum Card offers access to exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants, elevated experiences at live events, and 4 p.m. late checkout at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. See how to elevate your experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Don't live life without it. Terms apply. You're getting the most out of being at a game with American Express. The card member entrance, the lounge, and out tip-off. See how to elevate your live sports experience at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Don't live life without it. Eligible American Express card required. Benefits vary by card and by venue. Terms apply.